Thank you for joining us for another Teaching American History webinar archive. This Saturday webinar from November 2nd, 2019 was about Henry Clay. And we were joined by Dr. Chris Burkett of Ashland University, Dr. Dan Monroe of Millican University, and Dr. Eric Sands of Berry College. Uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar uh, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. Um, Ashbrook.org, TAH.org, I should say, is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach here at uh, Ashland University, History and Political Science, uh, also um, co-director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program for undergrads here at Ashland University. Um, I'd like to uh, remind you all of the theme of our uh, webinar series this year is American Minds. In case you happen to be joining us for the first time, the point is to pull together some some interesting, thoughtful folks here for a conversation uh, to say some interesting things about 10 important persons who have had a, an influence on the American mind or have somehow reflected the American mind in a, in a very significant way. And as always, I encourage you joining us to participate in our conversation by submitting your questions in the chat box, and we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. I ask if you submit a question that you submit it to everybody and not just me privately um, so that everybody can see the question and especially our, our panelists today in case they want to jump on one of your questions right away. In the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, and that email will also include a link to the archived video and audio from our program today. And as always, we draw, uh, we like to start our conversations from original documents and speeches. Uh, we've recommended several of those today, and many of those are available from the Ashbrook Center's document collection, which is also available at TAH.org. So today we're talking about Henry Clay, and I'm uh, very honored to introduce our panelists today to help us think about Clay. Uh, Eric Sands of Berry College and Dan Monroe of Millican University. Thanks, gentlemen, very much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. So uh, I always usually just start with a broad statement. Sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. So as always, feel free to disregard what I say or turn it into something more interesting. Um, so uh, Henry Clay, I, I, let me, I'll actually start by saying, I actually think I know more about Henry Clay's foreign policy and his thoughts on foreign policy than I do about some of his domestic policies. I mean, I, I mean, I know the general, you know, um, he's a Whig and, uh, you know, I know something about him, but um, he's known as the great compromiser. And as I was thinking about the webinar today, uh, it struck me that if any politician were known as the great compromiser in the 20th century, that would not be a flattering term, it seems to me, right? Uh, it would imply somebody who is either unprincipled or loose with their principles, uh, wavering, flip-flopping, uh, you name it, right? But this was a term that was given to Clay, I think, uh, as a term of honor, right, if I understand this correctly. And so um, I, I guess my, my first question is, um, if either of you would like to, to start with this and uh, play around with it a little bit, uh, first of all, how did he earn the title, and uh, and what was it about compromise that seemed to be so important in the public mind that they were willing to bestow this honor upon Clay as the, as the great compromiser. And then I'm hoping at some point, of course, that we'll, we'll get into the Clay's 
uh, political views and his his principles uh, and other things that uh, that led him to believe compromise was so important. So, any opening thoughts on Clay as a compromiser? What compromise meant to Clay and why he was so well known for it? Well, he would start any way you want. <laughs> um, he he brokers, of course. Uh, three key compromises in the antebellum period, political compromises, the uh, uh, Missouri crisis, he brokers, uh, the crisis over the uh, tariff in 1832-1833, and of course his final big contribution was the Compromise of 1850, although you have to give Stephen Douglas for kind of pushing that across the finish line, but it was Clay's conception. Um, and I, I think that Clay uh, becomes really a kind of political darling in the antebellum period for tamping down these sectional crises. I mean, it's, it's the, the, uh, the country's drift into more or less perpetual sectional tensions. Uh, and everyone is aware of this and is disturbed by it. And it's clay who steps forward time and again, uh, to tamp things down. Um, and in the end, when he's taken off the stage in 1852 by death, He's not there to broker it anymore. He's not there to come to 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 uh, to smooth things over. A lot of it has to do with, I think, uh, his approach to politics, which was to um, look for uh, the kind of the middle ground, whether the issue be slavery or the tariff. Um, you know, Clay is, you know, he, he becomes the leader of the Whig Party, largely the creator of the Whig Party. And there was that kind of Whiggish emphasis on the importance of avoiding social chaos and, and keeping the union together. Clay really embodies that. Yeah. But it, it probably didn't hurt that he was from Kentucky either, right? I mean, something about right. the significance of Kentucky in terms of just its geographical location. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a boundary state and um, um, a middle state, a middle ground between uh, north and south. And, and so he, in many respects, is almost the perfect representative of that. Yeah. So um, actually, we've got a first question. People want to dive right into this. So let's let's do it. <laughs> uh, what do we know about his personal public views on slavery as it relates to his efforts uh, to compromise? Uh, Eric, you want to thoughts on this or? Yeah, um, you know, as as to your first question, you know, he he was he was dubbed the great compromiser, and and people looked to him uh, to find political solutions to problems that seemed intractable. Um, you know, it was there, there was always the hope that Henry Clay could find some sort of middle ground uh, between two positions or sometimes multiple positions. Uh, that didn't seem like they could reconcile in the slightest. Uh, nowhere was that probably more true than the Compromise of 1850, where nobody saw viable solutions. Mm -hmm. And when Clay returned to the Senate, uh, hopes were lifted that he was going to be able to find um, some sort of middle ground. But I could point out that the term great compromiser didn't always work to his advantage. Um, and I think it actually hurt him in a lot of the presidential contests. There was a perception among uh, some of the electorate that he was willing to say and do anything to get elected. Uh, he wasn't really committed to any firm principles, um, that he was willing to compromise on just about anything. 
in order to uh, uh, you know broker some sort of settlement um, in Congress, uh, and it meant that a number of people didn't trust him. Um, you know, as, as I often tell my students, you know, there's, there's there's one political vice, you know, that the American public will not forgive you for, and and that's being inconsistent. Um, and Clay was was very inconsistent. <laughs> Um, he he changed his mind on a number of, of key issues. The National Bank, for one, you know, he starts off his career arguing against the National Bank and then becomes one of its biggest supporters. Um, this is something that opponents hung around his head for his entire career um, for for changing his mind um, on this issue. Of course, they did the same thing to Calhoun um later on as well but uh there was still even at that time uh, a certain value and a certain virtue placed on consistency in politicians and uh clay clay didn't really represent um that ideal um now I, as to slavery uh clay like most other things kind of split the difference um on on the slavery issue uh he was personally opposed to slavery. He found the institution to be abhorrent. He found it morally evil. He thought it was inconsistent with the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but he also fervently uh, opposed abolitionists. Um, he did not believe in immediate emancipation. He advocated gradual emancipation, uh, followed by recolonization uh, back to Africa. He was the head of the American Colonization Society for most of his career um, and entertained a number of pretty blatantly racist views um, when it came to uh, the status of blacks. Uh, he didn't think that whites and blacks could peacefully coexist in society. Uh, he thought that immediate abolition would result in either uh, the death of the black race because they were unprepared and unable um, to compete equally with whites in society, or it would lead to some sort of race war um, mm -hmm. that would result in the death of one or the other races um, in the process. So, you know, he tried to split both grounds and in the process ended up alienating voters in the South and alienating voters in the North. Um, Clay, Clay thought he had found a good middling position um, on slavery, but uh, as, as a consequence, um, he, he really did end up um, with some pretty powerful enemies uh, among abolitionists and among uh, states' rights and slavery supporters in the South. Mm -hmm. Well, that just reminds me, Eric, then, um, uh, what was uh, Calhoun, Calhoun, I think of as one of the strongest, obviously, right, that's an understatement supporter of states' rights and, and a pretty staunch defender of slavery. Can we talk a little bit about Calhoun and Clay for a second, about uh, they were pretty staunch enemies, Eric, my understanding is? Is that well, right? They, they started out as pretty staunch allies. Mm -hmm. um, they were both uh, national Republicans. Um, uh, they uh, stood together on a whole host of issues in the 18-teens and the 1820s. And it wasn't until Calhoun began to defect to the state's rights party um, uh, during the uh, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina nullification uh, crisis uh, that the two started to have a break from one another. But uh, they were also political rivals for the presidency. Mm. Um, and that put them um, at, at odds with one another as well. And uh, eventually, um, the two uh, uh, came to be uh, 
I wouldn't call them enemies. They respected each other a great deal, um, but uh, they certainly were political opponents um, and stood on opposite sides of, of a lot of key issues. Calhoun most famously opposing Clay's Compromise of 1850 um, and declaring on his practically his deathbed that the only solution now is disunion um, and, uh, you know, refusing to go with compromise to the very end. Hmm. That's a very fascinating. Do we know, uh, Eric or Dan, where Calhoun, I'm just sorry for bringing Calhoun up so much here, but do we know where Calhoun stood on the tariff compromise? That, that broker, he was opposed to that pretty strongly too, was he not? Calhoun, Calhoun joined Clay's efforts to find a, a solution. Um, uh, you know, it was it's actually an interesting um, issue. Uh, Clay brokers that compromise essentially by coming up with a um, um, time, uh, as uh, he often did. You know, Clay. One of Clay's big principles was, uh, and this is something where um, you see Clay influencing Lincoln. Clay's argument was, you know, let's, let's take a deep breath when we get into these crises and, and, and use time uh, as a, to, to, you know, to cool tempers and to come up with maybe a solution. And that was certainly the case in 32, winter of 32, 33, where Clay is trying to figure out how we can get out of this, uh, you know, this cul-de-sac we are on be the tariff controversy, and it's Clay who argues for, I mean, his solution is a gradual decline in tariff rates uh, to 1842, down to the, uh, I think it's the 20% level. Mm. And Calhoun joins him in that. You know, Calhoun recognizes that, you know, boy, you know, we're dealing with Andrew Jackson here, and that's a bit of a problem. Um, and and so he's his support for Clay's uh, compromise efforts is really one of the keys to, uh, and, and Clay reached out to him. I mean, they really didn't get, you know, as Eric points out, they really didn't, really didn't have uh, a great relationship. But Clay was a charming fellow. You know, whatever you think of Clay's, um, you know, uh, principles, I mean, he does admit uh, bluntly that he had changed his mind on the national bank. So at least he had the virtue of saying, you know, I've changed, you know, here, here, here's my new position. And this is why I believe in the national bank as opposed to 1811 when he, when he cursed it. Mm. Um, so he reaches out to Cajon and, and it's a key moment in diffusing that crisis. I mean, this is the, this is what made Clay a national celebrity was his ability to take, to, to uh, drift into a seemingly intractable sectional crisis and guide the country to a solution. Hmm. That's fascinating. We, we, we also have to remember Calhoun was pretty new to the states' rights movement um, at that point as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the, the very humorous things uh, is when he was writing the South Carolina Exposition in protest, um, he had to actually call in favors to friends to get copies of the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions because he didn't actually have any. Uh, I see. Um, and, you know, he's basing a lot of the arguments in the exposition and protest off of especially Jefferson's Kentucky resolutions, and he's never even read them. So, you know, he has to get them on loan from, uh, from friends to be able to put this together. So, you know, he, he was not at that point, you know, I think an ardent states' rights defender. I, I think this was still... Uh, something that was emerging at this point. Um, and so he was still willing to, 
um, entertain compromise um, on the issue to avert, uh, especially after the force bill is passed. Um, mm-hmm. He's very sure that Jackson is willing to take the federal army down to South Carolina, um, that uh, finding finding some way of averting that uh, from taking place when it becomes very clear the South is not going to rally around South Carolina um, and its nullification effort, uh, he's he's willing to entertain uh, a compromise on it. That's fascinating. So well, that's a, let me just say one. Let me just add to, to Eric's point. I I think that's quite right. I mean, you have to remember that Calhoun was a nationalist for a long time. I mean, Calhoun. We talk about we talk about political opportunism. Calhoun was a supporter of the uh, of the entire American system in the wake of the War of 1812, and it remained so for a long time. Mm-hmm. It was really, I think, uh, when Calhoun gets challenged uh, in South Carolina uh, by you know sectionalists in particular, that he moves in that direction around the time, as Eric suggested, that he uh, you know 1828, 1829, and and uh, but as as Eric suggested, I think he's quite right. You know, Calhoun's kind of late to the particularist, um, you know, sensibility. Yeah, I did not know that about Calhoun, uh, but it, it kind of makes sense. So what this would have been around, what, the 1830-ish or so? Right, right. You know, I mean, he, you know, he's the author of Exposition and Protest, which is 1828. 28, but, okay. but he's, you know, he's, it takes, a, you know, I mean, the point is he's, he's a nationalist uh, for, um, you know, really for a very, very long time. Mm, I did not know Kind of drifts. I, th- I think the reason, you know, there's a great book on this called John, John C. Calhoun, Opportunist, <laughs> which I think makes makes a very good case that it's local politics that prompts Calhoun to move in the direction of being kind of the southern defender. That's fascinating. Um, when I, when we think of the uh, um, the big sort of the big names, uh, the leading, the best known. Um, Political figures, uh, you know, in the 18 teens, 20s, into the 30s, we think of the tri- the triumvirate, right, of Clay and Calhoun and Webster. Um, so I'm throwing Webster into the mix now uh, with, with Calhoun and Clay, just to can complicate things even further. We say something about uh, you've mentioned, you've talked about how Clay was willing to reach out to, to Calhoun. What about um, working with Webster? Uh, where did where did Webster sort of fit into this um, simple of a way to think about it, but there's a kind of triangle here. <laughs> I mean, in, the, in 32, I could, I could speak to 32, 33. I mean, in 32, 33, uh, Webster is holding out for home valuation for, uh, you know, and then I get too, too complicated on the tariff, but the idea of when goods come into the United States, they would be valued at the port in which they arrived which tended to uh, increase their price and led to, therefore, a higher tax that they that would be paid. So Webster was kind of a stinker, as he often was. Um, you know, he's, he's uh, I, I, think, I think some of this is just driven by the fact that, um, you know, we're dealing with big egos here. Mm-hmm. And Webster sees himself as uh, competing for the national spotlight with Clay, with Calhoun, with Jackson, and so they work together, but they do so in a kind of a way of, uh, you know, intense suspicion and, um, you know, a, a desire not to always keep the spotlight on themselves. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, Webster could be, uh, you know, he's speaking of political opportunists and unprincipled. Webster could uh, certainly fit into that 
I mean, after all, he was always on the retainer for the National Bank you know, for many years. So he, yeah. you know, Webster was a bit of a character as well. Fascinating. Yeah. And they were both rivals for the presidency um, right. and, and questioned, oftentimes questioned each other's motives. Um, in proposing legislation and in taking sides on different political issues as being an effort to win the support of the North, the East, the South, the West, um, all of those kinds of things. They, uh, Clay, Clay and Webster had what I would call an uneasy relationship throughout their careers. Um, they, they respected each other. Um, there, there was, I think, a genuine warmth between them. Um, that was strained at various times. Um, Web Webster vacillated in some of his positions and um, uh, those sorts of things and would seem to sometimes blow with the political winds. Um, and Clay would call him out for it when, uh, when he did that. But Clay did the same kind of thing um, a number of times. Uh, so the, the the two of them were, were un, un, uneasy, um, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, had an uneasy alliance, and you know when the chips were down, Webster oftentimes came to Clay's aid um, and and supported him. But uh, at the same time, they both wanted the same prize, um, and that kept them, I think, from being closer friends and closer allies in Congress. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because I, again, when I think of Clay Webster and Calhoun in that era. Right. I mean, they're known for great speeches and taking sort of principled stands on things, various things in various ways. But the politics of this whole relationship is fascinating to me uh, because they are politicians after all. Right. So. Um, well, and as, as Eric points out, uh, it's, it's always good to remember that Clay wanted to be president all of his career. And he quarreled. I think a lot of people realize this. He quarreled with every president. <laughs> I didn't know that. I mean, you know, he quarreled with everyone with Monroe. Um, you know, he was he was nominally in the cabinet of Quincy Adams, but he quarreled with him. Obviously, he quarreled with Jackson, uh, yeah. Van Buren. I mean, go down the list. There isn't a single. And then even when the Whigs won the presidency, he quarreled with uh, Harrison and he quarreled with Tyler. <laughs> so you know, he's he's constantly. And I think part of it was. He felt he should be in that office, and, and the occupant that was there was not up to his uh, talent level. And so, uh, really, uh, one of the defining characteristics of Clay's career was his more or less perpetual feuds with whomever is holding the presidential chair. It's hmm. fascinating. Yeah, eight, 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 1840, when, when uh, Harrison becomes president, that's where Clay picks up the moniker of the tyrant. Um, and you know, he, he controlled Congress. Um, he decided he was the head of the Whig party and he was going to set the nation's agenda and the president's job was to go along with what he said. So even though he wasn't in the presidential chair, he believed himself to be in charge and he was petulant. He was arrogant. Uh, he was domineering. Um, he was condescending. Uh, and uh, he it got picked up in a lot of the newspapers that he was, you know, well, behaving a lot like Andrew Jackson um, <laughs> in the way that he was domineering uh, the Senate and domineering Congress um, with with his program. And, uh, you know, Harrison wasn't alive long enough to uh, really react one way or another. But uh, Tyler, um, you know, got sick of it real fast and then started vetoing. Um, a lot of Clay's legislation, and the two of them really started butting heads 
uh, at that point. But uh, Clay, Clay could Clay could carry things too far. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, when when you read the biographies of Clay, one of the things that stands out is that every page you turn, you see him described in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on on one page he's he's eloquent, he's humble. Uh, he's virtuous. He only cares about the union. Um, and then on the next page, he's venal. He's arrogant. He's <laughs> um, and and it just keeps vacillating that way, um, you know, all the way through these biographies. Um, and uh, you know, the the word that shows up in a lot of them is that he was the consummate actor. Um, he had a part to play, and depending on the scenario and depending on the. Uh, the scene he found himself in, um, he would try to fit the mold to to whatever you know, the situation required. Hmm. That's fascinating. So we've, we've so um, we've talked a little about this has come up a little bit uh, about uh, uh, you know Clay's politics and, and these sorts of things. Um, at the, at the 1820s, uh, it seems to me there's a kind of a shakeup politically going on, right? So we know. By the time we get into the 1830s, we've got the Whigs, and uh, one of you mentioned that, that Clay is, is, I think, the founder, or considered to be the founder of the Whig Party, or a leader, anyway, in the movement to create the Whig Party. So can we talk a little bit about um, Clay's role in the 1820s, and in this, I don't know if I want to go so far as to call it a realignment of the parties. Uh, what is it that leads, that that, that that Clay does, that takes us from having essentially Democrat, uh, national Republicans and Democratic Republicans to having um, Whigs and Democrats by the early 1830s. What role did Clay play in that? I mean, uh, Clay is very much a nationalist. He's, he's in favor of a robust federal government. Of course, he's the author of the, uh, the so-called American system, the tariff, the national bank, uh, internal improvements, the idea that um, the federal government has a role to play in the economy and the developing economy. And that becomes, of course, the great debate in the 1820s um, between those who, uh, like Clay, who see the country um, in as a developing economy and the federal government to have a role in it, certainly not as robust a role as today where it's, you know, a leviathan, but um, a more robust role than Andrew Jackson and others, who I think were uh, devotees of kind of a agra- Jefferson's agrarian ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so, you know, as far as the development of the parties, I mean, Clay, it's Clay, I think, who emphasizes congressional supremacy. You know, Eric mentioned Clay's battle with, battles with Tyler. Um, that was certainly driven in part by his uh, philosophical convic- uh, conviction that the Congress really should be the preeminent branch, mm. and that the presidency under Jackson had become was drifting into this kind of tyrannical uh, conception that classical republicanism always warned of. You know, if there was going to be a dictator in the United States, that dictator would come from the, an executive who was out of control, and Jackson certainly seemed to be out of control. Mm-hmm. In the sense that he's, you know, vetoing all these bills, he's, he's, um, you know, uh, vetoing for political expediency, not just constitutionality. Um, he's issuing threats, as he did during the uh, nullification crisis. Um, you know, he's being Andrew Jackson, <laughs> and, and so part, you know, Clay. He does this. Uh, there's a great speech that Clay gives in April of 1834. 
where he essentially lays out this critique of the Jacksonian presidency and emphasizes the necessity of congressional supremacy and what he sees as the um, abuses of presidential power that Jackson had engaged in. And it was, it, it was, you know, it's always important to remember that the Whig Party is, a, is very much a coalition of folks who are united around one thing, and that is that they're worried about Andrew Jackson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're worried about, worried about excessive presidential power. I mean, yeah. why is John Tyler a Whig? Well, John Tyler really didn't believe in anything that Henry Clay believed in uh, in terms of key issues. He was opposed to the National Bank. He didn't think much of the tariff, at least the tariff for protective purposes. Uh, he was suspicious of the federal government doing internal improvements, yet he drifts into the Whig coalition because he's worried about Andrew Jackson and what was yeah. seen as Andrew Jackson's potentially tyrannical actions. Clay's really the driver in that debate, uh, in part because of his stark characterization, uh, grim characterization of Jackson's actions as president. Mm. Is it true, by the way, that the Whig Party gets its name? In reference to uh, to thinking of Jackson as a king, King Andrew, and so right. It's a, it's that it's that kind of uh, Whig, Whig uh, criticism of the British crown that dates from the mid 18th century. Um, you know, there's there an attempt to to link with that kind of opposition literature that Bernard Balin writes about, um, and 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 suggests that yeah, Jackson is is acting as a kind of proto monarch. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, the the other thing I'd add to that is is under Martin Van Buren's influence, the Democratic Party is very rapidly building into a national party organization. Um, they are really dominating the national Republicans when it comes to our organization, um, to fundraising, to all, you know all kinds of party activities. And I think Clay comes to understand that they, they need a new party organization. They need something modeled a little bit more off of what the Democrats are doing if they're going to compete in national elections. And you know, one of the reasons he attributes his defeat in 1832 um, is to superior organization by the Democrats. So uh, one thing he complains about is that uh, his message was never able to get out to the electorate because the, the, the national Republicans didn't have enough newspapers. And so not enough people were able to read what Henry Clay's views were and read his defenses against attacks on his character and and all of these other kinds of things, whereas the Democrats had a proliferation of newspapers Mm. uh, that lots of people were reading, um, lots of people were being influenced by. And so I think Clay understood that, you know, they were going to have to play the game uh, the way the Democrats were playing it. Um, and, you know, from 1836 forward, um, you know, decided to put together the new opposition political party uh, that was organized more on national grounds and, um, you know, was engaged in the same kinds of party activities that the Democrats were engaged in. Mm. No, that's fascinating. I thought about that because this is also, is this the advent of, of party platforms as well? Uh, if I remember, don't, don't don't the idea that parties have to issue sort of manifestos in the form of platforms? The, de- the yeah. Democrats are are starting to issue platforms. The Whigs, it takes them a little bit longer. Clay is actually really disappointed in 1840 um, that the Whigs don't issue a platform. Mm. Um, he thinks they they should have put out a statement of their principles, mm. um, which 
would have been his principles. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but um, but the the Whigs pick up on this very quickly. I think 1844 they they do put out a platform that's short and 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 uh, sweet and concise. Uh, but uh, they they do finally follow suit and start putting out platforms of their own. Yeah, part of the reason I asked that question is in light of what you've both been saying about the, the Whig Party being formed initially as an anti-presidential uh, part, well, anti-Andrew Jackson party, right? Concerned about uh, abuses of executive power or augmentations of executive power under Jackson. But you can't, once Jackson's gone, you can't continue as a party, can you, on, on, on the idea that we're just the party in opposition to a former president. So it just struck me as odd that they didn't, uh, I guess I'm wondering when did the, or maybe it was simultaneous, the Whig party became um, known as the party of, as you were saying earlier, uh, Dan, uh, a stronger role or more important role for the national government, things like national bank and internal improvements and things like that. Um, yeah, they, they always had, uh, I mean, that was kind of the fallback position. Well, I shouldn't say fallback because in many respects it was a raise in debt trip. I mean, they were, they were formed as a kind of anti-Jackson coalition, but when Jackson's off the stage, then they are, I think, in many respects, they're the, the party of the developing economy, the, the party with a positive economic agenda. And, and I think more broadly, uh, culturally, they're the party of the strivers. You know, uh, well, you know, why does Abraham Lincoln join the Whig Party? Yeah. Uh, I mean, have, yeah. He, comes from, you know, he comes from an absolutely dirt poor background. His father is a subsistence farmer. Why didn't he then drift into the kind of the Jacksonian coalition uh, that dominated Illinois politics? And the answer is because he was a striver. Yeah. And the, well, the Whigs represented that kind of, you know, ideal, that American ideal that you could come up from nothing and become something by dint of hard work and perseverance. It's, it's a, it, you know, the Whigs are, they're more than just a political agenda. It's a cultural agenda as well. Mm -hmm. uh, although, mm -hmm. although it wouldn't be something that they would consciously define, but it's there. You know, they're they're the they represent those who want to come you know come up from the ranks, so to speak. But also more broadly, they're the party of social peace. They're the party that's opposed to the chaos that the Jacksonians represent. I mean, think in terms of Lincoln's Lyceum address, saying, "Holy something, bad man! The whole country is <laughs> descending into mob violence yeah. uh, and chaos." Uh, we need to we need to you know teach every lisping babe the the constitution. Yeah. Uh, so the so the Whigs are always the you know they're always the chin pullers. I'm pulling my chin now. They're always the ones you know when the Jacksonians say, hey, let's go take uh, another couple million acres of territory. The Whigs are going. Now wait a minute. Uh, you know let's let's think about that. Or mm -hmm. in the case you know Eric talked about you know um, Henry Clay's position on slavery. It was essentially a position that emphasized using time to settle or to get rid of an obviously uh, an institution that was antithetical to the conception of natural rights of a natural rights republic. You know, yeah. all, hey, Clay's principles. Clay always emphasized gradualism. Well, we've got a tariff crisis. How should we deal with it? Well, let's let's gradually lower rates. Not not in one year. But let's gradually lower rates so there's not any kind of there's less disruption to manufacturers, there's less disruption to other players in the economy. Same thing with slavery. Well, let's get rid of slavery. It's obviously morally wrong. Clay Clay acknowledges this, as Eric said. But let's do it gradually, and then uh, you know to avoid any kind of trouble between the races, let's uh, uh, have a colonization process. 
Mm. Um, all, of the, all, all of this emphasis on time. Um, and so much of this, you know, I hope, one, one thing I hope we talk about today is so much of this influences Lincoln. You know, if you look at Lincoln, uh, much, much of Lincoln's arguments are derived or heavily influenced, however you want to characterize it, by Clay. Mm-hmm. And what does Lincoln, Lincoln say in the first inaugural uh, with the Civil War, you know, basically you know, almost underway in the South, seven states seceded? Lincoln says in the first inaugural, before you do anything precipitate, take time. You know, in other words, take, take, a, take a deep breath. Uh, think about this. Think about what you're doing, because I'm going to maintain all of your rights under the Constitution. Well, that's something that Henry Clay easily could have said. I mean, that emphasis on time, uh, that weak conception of congressional supremacy, in part is a, a belief that you wanted to avoid, you know, if, in other words, if you have a debate in Congress over time, that's much less disruptive than, say, a president doing like Polk did. And, um, you know, in effect, you know, allowing either by hook or by crook the country to drift into war. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, uh, Shailen had asked earlier about the, submitted a question earlier about the influence of Henry Clay and Lincoln, so I, I kind of wanted to build up to that. Uh, and, and oh, really sorry. Which is great. Sorry, but, uh, sorry if I jumped the gun. No, no, I, no this is kind of, <laughs> to me, this is maybe the most interesting aspect of discussing Clay uh, is his influence on Lincoln. But Shailen does ask a more specific question. Do either of you know, did Lincoln have any significant personal interaction with Clay? Did he know him personally? They were in Congress at the same time when Lincoln served his one term in the House, right? I don't. Did, was the, did they know? Yeah, him? no, they 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 met when. Yeah, I mean, Lincoln always views. I mean, he says that Clay was his beau ideal as a as a statesman, and so when Lincoln gets to Congress in in uh, in 1847, one of the first things he does is go over and introduce himself to Clay. Mm. Uh, now, did they have any meaningful interactions? Well, I mean, after all, Lincoln was, you know, someone who was a minor figure in Congress in 47 and 49. Um, so they interacted, but I don't know how much Clay paid attention to him. But it, it is, it, yeah, that's true. He's just at one year, one term uh, <laughs> representative of the House from Illinois, from the middle of nowhere at the time. But it's interesting. I've read more of the Lincoln speeches than Clay's, to be honest. But I'm thinking of some of the speeches from Lincoln when he was in, in Congress that really do represent the kinds of ideas both of you were uh, using to describe Clay, right? So uh, Lincoln's speech on the Mexican War uh, sounds very similar to the arguments of Clay and the speech that we recommended today. And I, I remember Lincoln's speech on the sub-treasury bill, I believe, right, um, where he lays out a, a justification for uh, a, a national bank, essentially, uh, largely on the same grounds you were just talking about, Dan. That is, um, the, the problem with the treasury is it doesn't it doesn't actively put um, money into circulation that can be used by people that are sort of up and comers to build, a, you know, successful uh, uh, business or to be entrepreneurs or to you know go from working for one person one day to owning a mule and a cart, you know, a few years down the road and um, but it seems like uh, Lincoln was in favor of internal improvements for the same reason. I mean, roads encourage commerce, right? Which opened- no, that's right. You know, I mean, Lincoln was not someone who uh, wanted to be a subsistence farmer. He was a striver, and uh, his his approach uh, to the uh, economic growth, as you say, mirrors Clay's. I mean, the idea is that 
let's, as a government, within the limits of our philosophical framework, you know, it's always important to recognize that Clay's, uh, you know, conception of the federal government is a hell of a lot different than after the progressives, <laughs> you know. Uh, right, right. So, uh, you know, he was in favor of the federal government doing certain things, but it was, still would be a very limited, um, you know, involvement. But, but it would be involvement nonetheless. I mean, the federal government should build roads, should build canals, um, should be involved in creating an infrastructure to allow uh, goods and services to travel more efficiently and for prices, therefore, to fall and, and for there to be a, a greater economic growth. The National Bank provides a solid currency that everyone could use, as you say, Chris, and, and would establish branches throughout the United States. I mean, the Jacksonians viewed this as a threatening uh, privileged institution, whereas Lincoln and Clay uh, saw the National Bank, as you suggested, Chris, as an institution that is providing currency uh, to enable the farm, uh, uh, the uh, subsistence farmers to become not only uh, go beyond subsistence, but actually be selling their goods Great. Uh, and, bu- and buying additional land. I mean, there's really, it's, it's really, I've always been struck by how odd it is um, that the Jacksonians didn't get this, that they saw the national bank as, as this strictly as a kind of threat threat to, uh, or a force for economic privilege, and were unable to conceive of it as a key element in the developing economy. I mean, just to have a just to have a circulating currency that everyone had confidence in was huge. Uh, as opposed to you know the variable currencies uh, of state banks or the barter economy, you know, which was incredibly cumbersome. You know, I, I want fifty bushels of corn. Here's my pig. You know. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's awkward and difficult. Yeah, but and I wonder too if it doesn't if it, um, it doesn't have a lot to do or at least something to do with the. Again, I don't want to overdo this, but when I think of Democrats, I still again I know Democrats and Whigs were not necessarily a northern southern. There wasn't a northern southern division, but I still think of Democrats, uh, a lot of Democrats, in, uh, as um, as being very agrarian based. But also, of course, <laughs> agrarian in the sense that they own plantations and therefore also slaves. Slaves, right? Uh, and and I'm just wondering if if that agrarian mindset, that sort of Jeffersonian agrarian mindset, wasn't also deeply suspicious of things that smacked of uh, measures that promoted um, uh, industry and commerce and and those sorts of things, which in the mind of Southern agrarian uh, farmers. Uh, were associated with oppression and uh, um, you know, thinking of uh, government policies that favored uh, industry and commerce at the expense of of plantation farming and these sorts of things. So, uh, which, but again, I, which I, I, I wrote, uh, you know, when I, I I wrote a book on Tyler, and what you just described essentially was Tyler's position on a lot of these things. You know, um, Tyler uh, often. I, I remember a letter Tyler wrote where he said. I see the term national applied to everything now, and I find it irritating. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, now there's, when I go to Washington, D.C., now there's a national oyster house, right. or there's a national stable. Uh, you know, and, and from Tyler, you know, as you say, Chris, from that agrarian perspective, that was horrifying. You know, they were, they, they were very suspicious of the national government. Uh, their classical republicanism told them, that the national government couldn't help but be a threat. Um, so, you know, the, this is this is why 
Tyler drifts into a coalition against Jackson that's made up of people like Clay who believe uh, in things that are utterly antithetical to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm even thinking going all the way back, the, 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 this, this division, uh, it goes all the way back to an argument. You go back to Hamilton and Jefferson having an argument over uh, which way of life, the agrarian way of life, or, um, or, the, or uh, from Hamilton's perspective, the promotion of commerce and industry is going to do the most good for the most number of citizens. What's the best way of life? And, you know, yeah. Hamilton made the argument that, um, that the national government should promote and cultivate the growth of industry and commerce because let's face it. And in, at least in the North New York, where Hamilton was from, especially you have a large population of people in a very small area. No, most people are not going to be farmers. They're going to take jobs uh, or get into some sort of trade. Right. Um, and of course we know Jefferson was very distrustful of that sort of way as, as a sort of low and base way of life in itself compared to the kinds of, the kind of virtuous life that farmers would lead. But, um, but I, I wonder if, if we don't see that, that disagreement even among Jefferson and Hamilton really sort of writ large uh, by the 1930s um, between the Democrats and the, the Whigs in a certain way. Well, the, Democrat, the Democratic newspapers would routinely talk about the Whig program as being Federalist. Um, this is a revival yeah. of federalism. Right. Um, this is this is a revival of the Hamiltonian system. Um, this is this is what Jeffersonianism rejected, and you know the the Democratic Party is the outgrowth of Jefferson's principles. Um, so you know they they claim Jefferson for their own, and um, of course there's that famous speech by Lincoln um, uh, where he talks about the two parties switching coats. Um, right. That's right. <laughs> they wrestled themselves into the other. themselves out of one and it, you know, and into the other. Um, but but you you do see uh, that criticism um, uh, mounted in the newspapers, and hmm. you know I think that was one of the reasons Henry Clay was was always very quick to talk about his own upbringing. Um, he really sold the rags to riches story, um, hmm. which. Turns out to have not been entirely true. Um, his his father was actually more well off than he led people to believe. Yeah. Um, but you know he he really sold the whole idea of heading to Kentucky with nothing but a pack on his back and you know starting with nothing and you know working his way up. But um, he also never hesitated to point out that he himself was a farmer. Um, and he actually, he actually loved farming. Um, he loved spending time, uh, at, at his, at his plantation and, uh, engaging in, in the farming life and, uh, uh, in interacting with the field hands and, and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, he, he did kind of have this sense of, I do understand where you're coming from, but your fears are misplaced. Um, you know, this, this is, this is not about favoring a particular class. I wouldn't be favoring myself, <laughs> um, if, if that was the case, but you know, this is, this is about bettering the union and strengthening the union overall. And, you know, he, he said in one of his speeches that, you know, his three key words to politics were harmony, compromise, and union. Mm. Um, th those were his his three ideals, and I think those policies, those economic policies that he advocated, 
were really about doing what was best for the union, not advocating a sectional interest, not advocating um, the interests of a particular part of the country, but doing what was best for the union uh, overall. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great point. I just want to um, add to that, uh, if I may. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's very important to recognize that Clay's economic agenda was potentially the solution to the sectional crisis. You know, if you, if you could, you know, Clay hoped that if you, you could knit the, the sections together by economic growth, by uh, economic relationships, intertwining the north and south, the east and the west, all together in this kind of engine of economic growth, then maybe that kind of sectional particularism would be tamped down. And uh, it, it's a great vision. It didn't work. Uh, but uh, it, it was, you know, it, it, ha it has to be said, as Eric uh, emphasized, his quote, you know, part of his reason for advocating this was his devotion to the union. I mean, a you know, you know, and, and, and um, a classic example of this in, in um, you know, just dealing, trying to deal with the issue of slavery. I mean, one of the reasons why Clay advocated a distribution of the proceeds for land sales to the states was his hope that maybe that extra money could be used by southern states to come up with gradual emancipation schemes, you know, that they would they would take the money and they would offer the owners uh, compensation for slaves that they freed. Well, that's kind of that's kind of a nifty, um, you know, uh, idea within the conception of the time uh, to try. In other words, he's 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 casting about for practical solutions, just as Lincoln does uh, practical solutions to the slavery conundrum. Without with with as little social uh, uh, disruption as possible. Yeah, yeah. That that emphasis Dan made on on time. Um, you know, one of the things Clay thought was going to bring about the end of slavery um, was the growth of free labor. Um, he, he says yeah. as population expands, we're we're going to run out of territory. Um, it was one of the reasons he was against expansion. Um, and, uh, you know, as we run out of territory, we're going to have a lot of people that need jobs. And one of the surefire places they could find those jobs would be working on the southern plantations. And they would certainly cost a heck of a lot less to the southern planters than keeping slaves. Um, mm -hmm. And so slowly over time, free labor was going to come to replace slave labor. Um, and then at that point, uh, we could undergo the process of recolonization and move the slaves um, back to their homeland. Uh, so, you know, again, that 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 emphasis on gradualism and waiting to you know to to to, to let the process work its way out. Um, and you know, he he was, I think, somewhat principled um, on this issue of slavery, uh, even though he does take a kind of middling ground on it. Um, in 1839, as the, the presidential election is, is heating up and, you know, the talk again is about a Clay nomination, um, he delivers a, a major speech on abolition. And he ends up offending a lot of abolitionists by not taking a strong abolitionist ground. Uh, and uh, Clay says to a, a confidant, he says, well, he says, damn it, I'd rather be right than be president. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's his famous line, um, is, is I'd rather be right than be president. Um, and as it turned out, that's exactly what happened. Um, he, he didn't become president yeah. and, uh, that speech played uh, a significant role in him not getting the nomination. 
Um, but you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, he had some firm views on how this problem needed to be dealt with, um, and he stuck with them. Yeah, yeah. No, this, this is all fascinating to me, and, it, and it, I'm, I'm glad we've, we've kind of brought slavery back into it because that was kind of what I was going to do next <laughs> to, to complicate <laughs> things even further in light. Uh, I mean, there is a question. I've heard this question as students ask this question about Henry Clay when we discuss him in cl- in classes because he. He spoke against the institution of slavery and was in favor of colonization and the other things that you both mentioned. Um, but there is disagreement among some people as to whether um, he was opposed to slavery on principled grounds. I mean, Eric, you said he did have principled objections to slavery or whether he was um, opposed to slavery more on practical grounds. That is, slavery seems to be uh, the slave system uh, again, predominant in the South, seems to be um, uh, a hindrance, a burden, a problem uh, that, that is that is preventing the Union from, um, uh, you know, engaging in that kind of, um, I'm putting it negatively, Clay, Clay's Whig principles, which favored uh, greater opportunity, greater economic expansion, uh, and so on and so forth, seem to be hindered by the existence of the institution of slavery. Um, so I've heard people argue both that he, that he was, a, he was a principled opponent to slavery, but on the other hand, really the problem with slavery was that it was, a, it was a drag on, on the kind of union he envisioned uh, in light of some of the things we were talking about earlier. Do you guys have thoughts on which way we should lean on this? <laughs> Not sure if that was clear or not. I apologize. Well, I mean, I'll jump in. I guess uh, I think my my view is that Clay thought that I mean, he says this bluntly. He says uh, that he thought that slavery was a moral wrong, um, that it was you know indefensible uh, morally. Um, I don't. I guess what I would say is I don't know that he could not hold that view and still view slavery as being an economic uh, you know not part of a different economic future. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you get it. You get, you do get a sense that Clay sees slavery as a kind of antique institution, or however you want to characterize it, reactionary institution that was not in keeping with what was referred to in the period as the spirit of the age. Mm-hmm. You know, the spirit of the age is moving away from uh, strict agrarianism towards a more mixed economy. The spirit of the age is moving away from slavery. Um, and cash crops alone for the South to, 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 towards a more mixed economy. And Kentucky certainly epitomizes that, where you have a more um, a diverse economy that's still dependent on slave labor, but it's not an economy like South Carolina or Alabama, where you really, you know, you're, you're organized around one cash crop. Um, so I, I think the, the key to understanding, to me, uh, clay and slavery is Again, his emphasis on gradualism. Now, Clay saw the uh, slavery as an institution. I mean, he, 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 it's very Jeffersonian in the sense that Clay argues that slavery as an institution isn't something he says that we would have embraced or brought or or had, but we had no choice. In other words, it was here. You know, this is the so-called doctrine of necessity. Slavery mm-hmm. is here, therefore, out of necessity, we have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we deal with it? Well. Let's put it on a course of gradual extinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, this, I mean, this is this is essentially Lincoln's policy as well. You know, let's, you know, we have to deal with slavery because it exists and it is here. But our logical course is because of we we believe that it's not consistent with the spirit of the age or the direction the country is moving. What we should do is put it on a course of ultimate extinction. Yeah. Yeah. That gradual, means, well, gradual compensated emancipation followed by expatriation or colonization. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I was I was think that's that's very interesting. I was thinking that um, the the uh, um, the more nationalist tendency of Whigs. Again, I don't when I think of the Whig Party, I don't think of them as a necessarily. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I've never thought of them as necessarily an anti-slavery party. Although although what I I think I'm learning today is that that the Whigs tended to be anti-slavery, but they were gradualists in the sense that insofar as they're anti-slavery, we need to do this the right way and over time and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, it's always important to recognize that the that there were Southern Whigs who owned slaves and who uh, were not necessarily anti-slavery, but they, you know, and this is in the end why the Whig Party fractures. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, they, in the end, uh, the Southern Whigs and the Northern Whigs over uh, the Wilmot Proviso um, and, and the desire on the part of uh, Southern Whigs and Democrats to make condemnation of the Wilmot Proviso a party measure. Uh, but, but, the, but the larger point is that, uh, you know, how, how, if you have a coalition party that's made up of people who are slave owners and those who are not, people who are anti-slavery and others who maybe are somewhat tepidly anti-slavery in an abstract way, but not enough, that, not to the point that I want to free my slaves. <laughs> you know the kind of Southern Whigs. <laughs> well, you 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 try to you try to avoid the disputes related to it. I mean, the Whig. Remember the Whig position uh, when the Mexican War gets on off off the ground. Well, first of all, they they were uh, you know tepid towards Texas annexation. Uh, some supported, some did not. But they were uh, tried to, or, or basically, their argument on the Mexican War was, well, we don't want any additional territory. You know, let's 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 avoid absorbing more territory because if we do, then we're back to this you know sectional divide over whether slavery should be allowed to expand or not, as as it happened in 1820. Mm. So let's just try to avoid talking about it, <laughs> and and therefore we'll you know maybe we'll be able to stay together as a as a coalition. In the end, of course, it was impossible. Yeah, I think there is a sense in that. Clay was a lot like Jefferson. Um, you know, he, he spoke publicly about the immorality of slavery. Um, the the difference between them is Jefferson never really had a plan for what to do about the slaves, mm. whereas Clay did. Um, now, I mean, I have always thought the recolonization society was a utopian idea um, <laughs> that never had a real chance of of. <laughs> emerging into something workable, um, the amount of money that would have taken to actually relocate all of these slaves. Um, and Clay, of course, also wanted to relocate free blacks um, back to Africa as well, um, mm -hmm. so that there would be no racial intermixing. He talked about the great dangers associated with amalgamation um, and how repugnant that would be to society, um, which did not win him a lot of fans among the abolitionists. Um, but Clay was perhaps a little more consistent um, in his beliefs. He did emancipate slaves um, that, that he owned. Uh, when slaves ran away, um, 
Sometimes he would put ads in the newspaper, but more oftentimes than not, he said, if they don't want to be here, let them go mm. um, and just, you know, let them be. Um, he did work to try to uh, get emancipated uh, or uh, gradual emancipation passed by the Kentucky legislature. Um, he tried several times um, to get that passed by the Kentucky legislature, um, was unsuccessful, but, um, you know, continued to try to, to, to lobby um, the, the, the legislature to adopt these measures. So I, I, I think there was a, a genuine principled, you know, opposition to slavery as well. I mean, he, he has one speech where, you know, he, he says slavery is evil, you know, full stop. Yeah, I, I I think that you know sums it up. <laughs> yeah. um, that's that's a that's a pretty principled stand on you know where he he is on slavery. It's just there's the but afterwards. Um, you know we we can't emancipate right away. Um, this has got to be a gradual process. This is going to take time. This is something that you know we have to work at um, uh, overall. Yeah, Eric, can I just ask? There's, that's really interesting because. Well, let me put it this way. Um, so uh, uh, Clay was obviously in favor of the compromise, the Missouri Compromise. Um, a great architect of that compromise. Um, I, I'm trying to formulate my question here. I mean, you raise some interesting comparisons of Clay with Jefferson, but also some contrasts. I, I guess what I'm getting, I'm trying to understand uh, why Jefferson disagreed with the because Jefferson did not, did not like the Missouri Compromise. I'm wondering if some of the things you just said, Eric, don't help us understand the difference between Clay and Jefferson on slavery and how they thought uh, what the best course of action was to 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 put slavery further down the path of extinction. Because we know Jefferson thought that the, the Missouri Compromise was 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 bad. He called it the death knell of the Union, right? Um, uh, and so on and so forth. I always find it interesting that Clay, who seemed so heavily inspired and influenced by Jefferson, um, that it was also true that Jefferson was a, was not a supporter of the Missouri Compromise. Uh, can we think through somehow and understand why <laughs> why Jefferson was opposed to it, but why why Clay thought he was right despite that? I'm not asking the question very well. I apologize. I'm, a lot of new thoughts are running in my head here. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's. I think the thing we have to remember is Clay, when it came to politics, you know, oftentimes checked his principles at the door. Um, and I think when it came to the Missouri Compromise, he was thinking primarily in terms of what was best for the Union, mm -hmm. not so much what was best for slavery. Oh, that's very well. Um, and you know that. This was an issue that was dividing the country. This was an issue that had overtures of sectionalism and division written all over it. And Clay was looking for a way of bringing the sections back together, uh, a compromise that would allow us um, to peacefully coexist on the slavery issue. Um, and, you know, I, again, if you look at his long-term solutions to the slavery problem, you know, there's no reason that they're not going to be effective in this new territory as well. Um, it's just probably going to take a little bit longer 
Um, it's going to be a little bit more drawn out. Uh, so I don't think he abandoned his, any of his ideas that slavery was wrong. I yeah. think he just put union um, before his anti-slavery beliefs. Yeah, the way you put it, Eric, makes me think, because I'm thinking of Jefferson's main critique of, is, is Jefferson's two critiques of the Missouri Compromise are, one, um, actually allowing slavery to expand into all the Western territories might do more to sort of diffuse slavery and therefore put it on the path to ultimate extinction. But he, but he also... Mark Clay made that argument as well. Okay. So that they have in common, interestingly enough. But Jefferson claims that the compromise created a geographical division, right, along a political line. And I wonder if if Jefferson wasn't being a little naive in that. I mean, it may have created a sort of legal division in terms of geography, but I wonder if Clay didn't recognize something Jefferson didn't. And that is the line already existed. It just wasn't legal. I mean, the way you're describing it makes me think Jefferson's critique is Missouri Compromise creates the division. And Clay seems to be saying, no, the division exists. The compromise will allow for us that division to be mended somehow, at least in a, over over time again. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but... Um. No, I mean, I, I think that... Uh, I think Clay was uh, someone who was dealing with the practical reality that the Congress was riven by this uh, sectional issue, and he came up with the best solution that he could. Mm. Uh, I mean, if anything, you know, uh, Clay was a very practical-minded legislator. Um, and, and so I... Uh, I mean, I think everything that er you and Eric have said is correct. Um, I think Jefferson identifies absolutely accurately the problems associated with this, um, you know, slavery emerging as a very um, controversial issue that divides the sections. It's it's a big problem, and it's going to continue to be a problem. Clay, I think, becomes a kind of national hero and celebrity because of his ability to take uh, an issue about which there really could be no effective compromise and may and make a compromise nonetheless. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, there's really no compromise on slavery. I mean, you're either for it or you're against it. I mean, there's not, <laughs> there's really no middle ground. So, and yet Clay was able to find a middle ground uh, on three occasions. Um, you know, I, and, and uh, I'm including the tariff crisis too, but in many respects, the tariff tensions over the tariff were in part a product of uh, uh, the uh, slavery as an issue and concerns about, you know, part of the reasons why why South Carolinians were so worried about the tariff was their uh, concern that as the federal government becomes more powerful, gets more revenue, well, maybe the federal government will then move against the institution of slavery. Mm. So even in that crisis, slavery is like, you know, the Wizard of Oz. It's like the, the specter behind the curtain. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, uh, by the way, um, Victoria asks about Clay's policies. We were talking about his recolonization policies. Policies. I don't know if we know the answer to this, but she asked about mixed individuals. Uh, with uh, uh, she mentions Native Americans and Mexicans. Um, so I'm not sure if we know directly if Clay had thoughts on any of uh, those sorts of people. But she does mention Mexicans, which reminds me that. Uh, Dan, you mentioned this earlier, Clay's opposition to the war with Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, does his opposite, and I think, Dan, you said his, 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 one of his reasons for being opposed was that it was going to add more territory and therefore reopen the, the slavery wound even more. Um, 
but were there other reasons? What were the other reasons Clay was opposed? Well, to? yeah, I mean, in his 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 speech that that we we see, uh, it's before us in our reading today. Uh, you know, he talks about uh, the fact that you know just for the United States to absorb uh, Mexico as part, uh, you know, you know, if the consequence of the war is Mexico going to be part of the, the United States, uh, that's just as uh, to contemplate that Clay seems to suggest, well, actually bluntly suggests, is uh, very difficult. You know, you would be you be you would be joining a populations that are vastly different in culture and religion. Uh, you're talking about large differences. Uh, distances between the uh, seat of government in Washington, D.C. and mm-hmm. places in Mexico. I mean, in other words, he goes down the practical problems associated with absorbing Mexico and, and kind of dismisses it. But, but his overarching concern is that um, it's, it's going to reopen the sectional crisis, which, of course, it does. And it should also be said in this context that um, Clay loses a son in the uh, Mexican War. You know, his his uh, uh, yeah, his, his son becomes a um, officer in the Kentucky Regiment and is killed in action mm-hmm. uh, in a very savage way um, in the war. And um, um, so, you know, it for for Clay, and you get this sense in the speech, uh, the war was a tragedy on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. First, yeah, first, I, I first very, very, very unfairly, um, the fact that Clay's son died in the Mexican-American War uh, was actually used against him and his opposition to the war. Um, it was in the opposition press. It was, you know, your own son, you know, is fighting uh, for the cause of Mexican liberation and, um, you know, oh, you're, nice. you're out there opposing it. Um, you know, you're, you're disgracing the honor of your child. Um which was, you know, just vicious um, uh, smear um, um, on him. It, it, I'd add as well, it was a particular tragedy because Clay, Clay's life was just beset with tragedy. He mm-hmm. lost all of his daughters um, at premature ages, mm-hmm. um, and his sons were all a colossal disappointment to him except for Henry Jr., and Henry Jr. is the one that died in the Mexican-American War. Mm-hmm. Um, two of his other sons ended up in lunatic asylums. Another one couldn't get out of gambling problems and was costing him money his entire life. Um, he just was beset with a, a cloud over his head. At one point, to try to alleviate all of this bad luck, he even allowed himself to be baptized at Ashland, um, <laughs> thinking that um, the providence of God would finally look over him and, and protect his family. Um, but I do want to say something real quick on the Native Americans. Uh, Clay, Clay did not have a particularly elevated view of Native Americans. Um, he shared, I think, the prejudices of a lot of Americans uh, about their capabilities and, and their inferiorities to the white man. Um, but he did become a very staunch supporter of Native Americans. Mm. Um, he fought um, throughout his career uh, to uh, make sure that they were protected um, he opposed Jackson's Indian removal policy. Um, when the policy was enacted, he, he fought to try to create you know, reservations and areas that the Indians would be protected. Um, and in fact, several of the tribes were uh, so taken by the fact that Clay spoke up for them um, and uh, defended them that they erected monuments to him. 
That's fascinating. Um, uh, so he what he was kind of actually known as as something of a of a patron saint of the uh, of the uh, the Indian tribes um, uh, during his political career. Yeah, because at the very least, he expected them to be treated justly and, yes. and protected in, in a certain way. Uh, that's fascinating. It reminds me, this is really off topic, but it reminds me of, you mentioned the monuments erected to him. Uh, there were monuments erected to Clay throughout Latin America as well, yes. for different reasons, of course, I think. But, um, but when I think of Clay's American system, as uh, you and Dan were describing it earlier, uh, his vision for that extended throughout the Western Hemisphere, of course, right? Um uh, prob- I think is an extension of his own economic views and economic uh, 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 sort of vision for America. But, uh, but that led him also to be a great supporter of, uh, of Latin American independence movements. Um, and he was one of the more outspoken members of Congress um, uh, in that regard. And so I just, I just made me remember that uh, he, he was widely praised throughout Latin America and there were statues of clay in virtually every country uh, uh, until in some cases recently when, uh, they were toppled by new sort of socialist regimes, but never mind, I won't go down there, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so he is known as that kind of, it's, it's interesting that we sort of end, we're getting close to the end here. We sort of end on that aspect of Clay's reputation, um, as a, as a, a you know, somebody who had a vision and was willing to stand up for the rights of, of others. So. Um, this is this is something of a non sequitur, <laughs> uh, but one thing I, I wanted to note too is that Clay Clay was a very funny guy. Uh, you know, he was very he was known for being very charming. He tended to dominate rooms he was in, in part by his humor. Told a lot of funny stories. Uh, was known for coming to the Senate floor occasionally and just getting up and telling a funny story or, or just kind of riffing. And uh, the reason I mention this is, is again, it's it's one of the things that uh, he shares with Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, because this is, you know, as you all know, Lincoln was a very funny guy. He used yeah. humor to diffuse awkward situations. I mean, you always think of the anecdote where Harry Beecher Stowe goes to see Lincoln about to lobby him to, <laughs> to emancipate the slaves in the White House, and Lincoln starts telling her funny stories and jokes, and she starts laughing, and she... She writes her daughter when she gets back to the hotel. Well, I was ushered out, and I, and all I did was laugh. The entire time I was in the office, I finally get him in the room. He tells a bunch of funny stories, and I just roared with laughter. And then pretty soon, he ushered me out. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, Clay Clay uses his you know his, his gift of a marvelous personality and humor that he uses to advance his his agenda. And and uh, he does it very effectively. And and again, it's another case, uh, example of Lincoln, you know, yeah, in similar way. Yeah, yeah. they all, they also joke. You know, Henry was unbelievably popular with the ladies, and <laughs> okay. so the the joke goes that if women had had the right to vote in the 19th century, he would have won election handily. He would have been president. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, maybe besides that, I, I actually uh, am seeing a lot of par- more parallels with Lincoln and more reasons why Lincoln thought so highly of him. So, um, I mean, besides the, the, the popularity with the ladies things, perhaps, but uh, but uh, yeah, that's fascinating. So we've come to the end of our time. I, I think we could go on. There's so much more great stuff to talk about here. But uh, somebody did ask earlier, so maybe we'll end with this. Do either of you have recommendations for for books? What should people read? on clay, uh, or the antebellum era. 
I mean, I love uh, the uh, David and Gene Heidler biography of Clay. I think it's a very fine work. Uh, I mean, uh, I think that uh, Daniel Walker Howe's uh, broad history of the antebellum period, What Hath God Wrought, is probably the best narrative, like general history of it. Um, you know, that, those are two that come immediately to my mind. Thank you. Uh, How Hal's history of the Whig Party um, is 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 quite good, very long, but but very good. Uh, Clay's modern biographer is Remini. Um, he's written a seven eight hundred page, um, which uh, is is not bad um, overall. Um, and uh, of course, uh, Merrill Peterson's The Great Triumvirate um, mm-hmm. does a lot of good work with, uh, covering Clay's career, um, and his interaction with Calhoun and Webster. Fantastic. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. And Dan, Dan, you're working on a book on the end of LM still? Am I allowed to ask? Yes, I'm doing, uh, uh, I'm finishing Bob Johansson's biography of Polk. I mean, Bob Johansson, when he passed away, had partially completed a biography of Polk and I'm finishing it. Fantastic. Look forward. Yeah. Look forward. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning it. Well, Thanks to both of you very much. It's been very, very lightning and uh, very fun. I've enjoyed it very much. And um, I always learn a lot when I get to talk with you guys. So I appreciate it very much. Wish you both the best. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Uh, Thank you. And thanks for uh, the questions that were submitted. And uh, just another quick reminder about the email you'll receive with your link for a certificate of participation. Um, If you like these types of webinars and like these kinds of, kinds of conversations, uh, take a look at the other resources that Ashbrook provides. Uh, we provide free one-day seminars uh, in over 20 states, uh, which again are based entirely on original documents and discussions. So go to the tah.org website, um, uh, click on seminars at the top of the screen, look for one-day seminars as the category, and uh, see if anything is interesting to you. And, and please, by all means, apply to those. Um, Once again, thank you, everybody, and I look forward to seeing, hopefully, everybody at our next Saturday webinar, which will be December 7th, the day that will live in infamy, on Harriet Beecher Stowe, who we just mentioned. So, December 7th, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Until then, take care, and thanks again. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at tah.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.